Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello. Welcome to the news. It's the end of the week. Actually, if you're listening to the podcast, I have no idea when it is. But for me, for right now, for people listening live, it's the end of the week. Uh, And today we're going to talk about uh, a new series, very popular on Netflix, Made. That's M-A-I-D. It is based on an autobiographical um, book by Stephanie Land about her experience cleaning houses and maybe getting out of a dangerous marriage uh, in the process. Uh, It stars Margaret Qualley and features Margaret Qualley's actual mother, Andy McDowell, as the character's mother. Uh, And we will come come to that. We will also come to a conversation about James Bond. How has James Bond endured, particularly with some of the, you know, I don't know, male sexist baggage that he carries with him from his origins uh, through all this time? Uh, And we are going to begin with a very interesting list by the BBC, the BBC's 100 Greatest TV Series of the 21st Century. This was based uh, on a poll, a truly international poll, uh, casting a very, very wide net of uh, critics around the globe, still dominated by by American shows, followed by British shows. uh, But uh, the polling at least was highly global. Uh, Here to do all that, Rand Richards-Cooper, a fiction writer, contributing editor at Commonweal and the restaurant critic for the Hartford Current. Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project. Happy to have them both here. Um, Maybe we'll just sort of begin with uh, what actually, and and I think this is sort of a going away choice too. I don't think this was a close vote at all. I looked at a lot of the ballots. They're all available. Uh, And I believe this series pretty easily secured its number one uh, spot, probably to no one's surprise. It's The Wire. Let's hear a scene from season one, episode one. Every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut ring. We rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, and we rolled to late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time. He's not. It fade a few shooters. Play it out to the pots deep. Snatch and run. What, every time? Couldn't help herself. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys will shoot crap, right? And every Friday night, your pal Snap Boogie. He'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away? You let him do that? I mean, we'd catch him and beat his ass, but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you. If every time Snap Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? With Snap Boogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? Got this America, man. All right. Some some of the brilliance of the series is, in fact, encapsulated in that conversation between Detective McNulty and a friend uh, of a character named Snot Boogie. Uh, but uh, there's so much more to say, so much more to talk about. Uh, I'm going to throw it uh, out to the panelists. Rand, maybe you can get us going. I, I, I don't know. As you behold this 100 uh, series list in, in all of its glory, did you do you have any kind of overarching reactions to it? Well, my Colin, my overarching reaction um, 
and I emailed you uh, guessing that you've seen way, way more, many more of these shows than I have. I've seen 27 of the hundred. And, and I feel like, especially the past year and a half during the pandemic, I and my family have been watching so much television that you, you'd think I would have, you know, 80 of these uh, done by now. So my overarching thought First of all, is is what a a, uh, a smorgasbord of quality the past uh, twenty years have provided in TV. At some point, I made um, a list of my top twenty five TV shows of all time. And Colin, you and I are in the same age cohort, so we were kids in the sixties and seventies. Um, and you know, my childhood ended, you know, sometime in the eighties. Um, and prone as I am toward looking back fondly toward the experiences of, of childhood. There was only one show from my childhood, All in the Family, that made my list of top 25 shows. So in TV, you know, the good old days is is really not that at all. It's it's the good new days. And uh, so I would just say the 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 amount of quality and uh, and and quality that seems in comparison with what went on, you know, 30 years ago. This seems all very, very literary, literary in a way. I mean, there's a way in which. One of the essays that we read um, in connection with this talks about how central TV series have become to the cultural conversation. Maybe they, to some extent, shoved aside reading. The last thing I'll say about, I mean, I have my favorites on this list, but I've only seen 27 of them. So there's a lot I can't comment on. And I have never seen The Wire. It's very embarrassing to say that at this point culturally. You remember how Russell Baker, the columnist, used to every year or two write this column about how one day he was going to read Proust and, you know, he never got around to it. So The Wire is sort of my à la recherche de temps perdu, and all my friends say I would love it, and somehow, you know, I just don't do it. The last thing I'll say is they should have included The Sopranos. I know technically it started in 1999, but A, the bulk of The Sopranos did happen in the 21st century, and B, arguably, it's the show that made all of this possible. So I have my other little beefs with this list, but that's my overview. They, they were strict about this, too. Uh, they say somewhere that they threw out choices that some people picked. I don't even know that they allowed. It looks like maybe a show could start under circumstances in 2000. But I think really 201 is where they wanted it all to start. And they, they threw out some some choices uh, that uh, didn't conform to their time frame, and if they couldn't reach the critic in time, the critics, you know, some of the, the picks were sort of lost that way. So I'm just going to quickly read the top 10. Um, the Wire, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Fleabag, Game of Thrones, I May Destroy You, The Leftovers, The Americans, The Office, UK version, uh, and Succession. So Mercy, I don't know if you want to talk generally about the list, but I specifically want to talk to you about I May Destroy You. I May, I may Destroy You is a little bit of an outlier on the list. It only ran for one season uh, and uh, probably had a more niche following than pretty much everything else on, on this list. Um, and in some ways, it's probably a pretty good predictor of the future of television in the sense that I think we're probably all going to have shows that we like and are going to be less and less likely to like the same shows just because there's going to be so many of them. But I'd love to hear more about what you think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think what was interesting about I May Destroy You, as you point out, is it, there was only one season on the list. I haven't done a full audit here, but right, 51 is small acts, only one season there for 2020. Maybe we'll get another season, but we we actually don't see a lot in the way of limited series on this list and we we certainly aren't seeing a lot in the way of um things that are running for one season 73 is planet earth and you know i love planet earth but i think that michaela cole has and i've talked about this before put together something of a cultural 
um, phenomenon in I May Destroy You. And, you know, in it, she gives us permission to be critical of society and also kind of relish in the good parts that feel bad in the moment um, or, you know, be critical of the um, be, of the bad parts that felt good in the moment. And I think that even in watching it, there's something a, a sort of in a viscerally intolerable way um, forces the viewer to reckon with some of our preconceived notions around consent and, um, you know, I'll say sex culture. I, I don't want, I, I don't actually like saying rape culture because I think that our issues with um, consent boil out to how we as a society reckon with cons, uh, consent around um, uh, our, the entirety of our sex culture. And I think Michaela Cole nails it in I May Destroy You. I think what is interesting with this list that Rand, you sort of hint at is the shows of yesteryear, yester century, um, didn't really invite a conversation about society in the way that these shows do almost everything here, right? I, I think, and we'll see, we'll talk about, about this when we dive into Bond as well, but there is a bit of a reckoning some many of these shows bring to the screen for us and it, it they hold up a mirror at some point. Um, and, you know, the cultural piece actually dives into this. At some point, TV turned the corner and shifted gears and asked us to sit with a piece of content for a period of time, dive into an issue with characters, get a, a, a sense of a character, identify with the character and think about, think deeply about um, a, an issue impacting society in a way that tell um, uh, the big screen can never quite do. Yeah. Although I, I just would just temper that being the oldest person on this panel and say, you know, you could go all the way back as far as Twilight Zone, which is pretty near the origins of television, and find, you know, people tackling really complex societal issues, often allegorically. But, I mean, it, it hasn't really just started recently. I think it's being done better and more consistently. And I think to your point, Mercy, it's harder to make an argument for the quality, for the top quality uh, of a TV series these days if it doesn't at least you know, turn its gaze somehow or other towards some of the complexities and inequalities embedded either in our society or that of Westeros or you know, whatever it's about. Right. Um, I, you know, it's harder for, for it to earn its spurs, I think, you know, if you don't do that. In the past, you could do show a show, you know, that, that didn't touch on any of that stuff and nobody would particularly care. So, and Rand, you know, just to that point. So, I, first of all, I should say that although I'm not a completist about all these shows, I've at least seen, <laughs> I've seen enough to be able to have a conversation about 35 of the top 40 shows. Um, now, on the other hand, for example, Fleabag is probably the highest rated show that I can't really have a conversation about. And I was mentioning that around the house today and somebody said immediately, well, you're not the you're not the target demographic for that. You're not the target audience. And that's an interesting concept, too, to go back to what you were saying, Rand, which is, you know, I would argue that in the 90s, you know, America became more Jewish just because every, so many people were watching Seinfeld and mad about you and a few other things. But particularly Seinfeld, you know, it became more Jewish and more New York centric because you had to meet the material halfway if you were going to participate in what was really kind of a churning national conversation about Seinfeld. And I don't think that happens so much anymore. Right. I mean, I think people feel like, oh, this isn't I'm not the target audience, but here's eight other things for which I am the target audience 
Yeah, I don't know. Do, Colin, do you think, um, do you and Mercy think that that, is that a result of conscious conscious planning and marketing by the creators of these shows? I mean, presumably people want to get the largest audience possible, but I think there's a general sense in the culture that maybe one way to do that is to aim at a very specific kind of, of experience and 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 render it you know as truthfully and accurately as you can and then and then hope that you know other quote unquote kinds of people will be interested in that i don't i don't normally i don't often have the feeling when i'm watching a show that i'm i'm not the target audience but maybe you know when i watch a few episodes and then and then kind of drift away you know maybe it's because of that usually my sense is that i don't think the show you know was good enough i I, I did when I did try to watch The Wire, but um, and I watched one episode and I found it kind of uh, the first episode sort of confusing and bewildering narratively, and um, I probably was just in the wrong mood at that moment. And and I thought, oh no, I, I, I you know, like at the beginning of a novel, you're trying to assimilate so many new things that the first few pages can be can be very confusing. And this was this was like that in The Wire times ten. And then you know I just moved on to the next show, which by the way is so easy to do now because there are 19 of them. Um, you know, that are good. And then all my friends said, no, it's just the first episode. You got to get by it. You know, so I, I'm sure that I will. But I'm like with Fleabag. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure what sort of commonality I have with with a 20 uh, something person in London who's like a sex addict. Um, <laughs> but but, you know, probably ostensibly not much. I'm like a 62 year old um, happily married family father who walks the dog. But the the quality of, of writing, the quality of surprise the exploration of character. I mean, these are fundamental things. And I guess one of the things that I mean when I say that to some extent quality TV is doing very literary stuff is that it's taking on, you know, both at the individual level, deep dives into character. And as Mercy, as, as Mercy said, you know, at the social level, another thing that novels have also long done, individual in society. So it's giving us in, in high quality ways with a lot of intensity, small pictures and big pictures. And, and you know, different, different shows do that in different ways and different, different measures. And, but I, I think of those as almost like, you know, universal kinds of engagements that art does. Right. And maybe in that sense, uh, Mercy, our television is also changing. You know, there used to be this sort of whole thing about the water cooler moment. You know, people would come into work and they probably didn't even have a water cooler, but they'd go somewhere and they'd talk about the previous night's fill in the blank. Um, and, and I don't think that's how we use television. I mean, Rand in one of his emails does was talking about like being at a dinner party and bringing up a show like Rectify It. It turns out nobody else at the dinner party <laughs> has any idea what he's talking about. And so that we use television a different way, right? I, I, I'm, we don't use it to dream and we don't necessarily use it to bond with other people, but maybe we use it to help process our own specific realities. That is fascinating. I think that there is for me a sense of, and I think I think this about um, television as well as the commercials running alongside of a piece. You get a snapshot into the culture from you know from which it comes um, by watching a piece. And I think if we were to consume content with that as a lens, what we're what we're opening ourselves up to, especially since, you know, thinking about this list, it was the Office UK version, not the Office um, US version. There's There are pieces of that show on the entirety of it, really, that if you're opening, if you're coming to it with um, an American lens, you're going to kind of miss 
some of these nuances to UK culture that can actually help you as, dare I say, a citizen in the world, right? I think that there is a way that if you're consuming all this content, you're a well-rounded individual in the way that a liberal arts education might provide. So um, as, a, as an endorsement, as a premature endorsement, maybe, you know, put down the books and don't apply to liberal arts colleges. Just start from the top of this list and work your way down and you'll be a <laughs> citizen. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I also think that what's interesting here um, is when we're talking about um, the snapshot into a culture, there is, again, um, that, that mirror being held up. And for me, to your point, Rand, it's less about whether I was the target audience, more about was this a good piece of... Uh, of art, right? I, I mean, and in that first, even if I'm not the target audience, in that first uh, episode or two, I could see not a single person on the screen that looks like me and also feel like, whoa, this is fantastic. I don't in any way identify with Frank from uh, House of Cards, but I think that that is a fantastic show, right? And I, I think that there is, particularly from the lens of public relations, a way that we, when we're creating content for that resonates with other people, that you're trying to um, fit the balance of, of authentic for a specific community, but approachable for um, an entry point for other people. And there is something about the way almost everything on this list hits that balance really well. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons to, there are many, many reasons to praise The Wire, but in particular, the fourth season about the of The Wire. So a lot of these seasons were sp- uh, focused on specific aspects of society, all through the lens uh, of this same group of cops and criminals and people that they knew. But the, the fourth season really is about the educational system uh, in, in a city like Baltimore. And you follow some kids who, you know, are having a very different life than most of us who are talking on this show would have. And and the ability of the show's creators to make us identify, these feel like our kids by the end of this series. I mean, you are so wrapped up uh, in what they do and, and the, in the way that fiction can create empathy. Uh, I think some of these series do an amazing job uh, of it. Um, yeah, oh, I don't know. Yeah, 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 maybe, um, maybe say one more thing. We may have to transition to Bond pretty soon. I just so to think of a show, and as you know, Colin is one of my great favorites, um, and it's a network show as well. A show that is unifying, I guess, in the sense that many different, I think, kinds of people can watch it and it touches on a whole row of American issues. Sort of surprisingly, is Friday Night Lights, a show nominally about football, but you know, really about a whole bunch of other things: the the, the corruptions of winning that the way marriage is a daily challenge, the ups and downs of raising kids, but, but also class and, and race in, in America. And when our family watched this, you know, we frequently would just pause it and talk about something that had, had just happened. Um, and often the things we were talking about had to do with, with race, class, mistakes that parents make uh, vis-a-vis their kids and then, and then sort of have to, have to take back. So um, I, do, I do think there are shows um, that you know have a big have a large potential audience. That's one of my favorites. Anyway, yeah. I wanted to say that it's number twenty eight here. I would be happy if it were in the top ten. Yeah, I, I would agree. I one hundred percent agree. All right, we probably just for the sake of time need to transition from there to uh, James Bond. We read an article uh, that sort of marveled at the durability of the Bond franchise, talking in particular about what it was like at the beginning. Uh, when it, what it was like at the beginning was just n- not merely 
sexism, but, you know, really out and out misogyny in a lot of cases, uh, a man who, who, who sometimes uh, acquired the uh, attentions of a woman by forcing himself more or less on her. There were acts of violence unnecessarily directed uh, at women. Uh, the, the subhead of the article, which appears in Long Reads by Carolyn Wells, how has someone who is a borderline rapist, murderer, and potential sociopath endured through all these decades? Um, it's an interesting question. And, and so, Mercy, I feel like part of the answer is because he changes, he adapts. Um, you know, the, the Sean Connery bond and the Daniel Craig bond are, are the same person in name only. Yeah, I think that the sustainability of the Bond character is that it grows with us. Um, and if our society is heading in a particular direction, we sort of see that evolution alongside um, in the in the evolution of Bond. And, you know, I've been I'm, I'm happy that that's the line that you pulled from the article. But because ever since I read that line, it sort of resonated with me, um, the the part borderline rapist and it was like you know tying this back into the conversation around i may destroy you is like we are a different society now particularly because i don't know that there is such a thing as a borderline rapist um but when it comes to bond the way we see him going from you know a i, I think the the author says bum slapping um uh protagonist to someone to a uh, you know a male um leading uh character who experiences a full spectrum of human emotion is sort of telling for where we are right i think there's a lot more storytelling happening that gives men permission to experience that full range of emotion outside of violence towards women and rage yeah you know rand i would say that there are a series of things that that the bond franchise had to react to and was for the most part kind of clever about reacting to. I would probably start it with AIDS at a certain point. Um, I think it's sort of the Timothy Dalton one in particular is often singled out. Bond's promiscuousness kind of had to be dialed back because, you know, people were being considerably more careful about uh, who they had sex with and it just you, wouldn't work up on the screen. I would say Austin Powers was another big cha- uh, another big challenge. Once this stuff was satirized so effectively, uh, all of its tropes, all of its kind of uh, out of time uh, anachronistic values and stuff like that. I mean, there was it probably doomed Pierce Brosnan in the role because it, he just was a little bit too close maybe to, to that kind of take on it. Uh, I think 9-11 was another gigantic uh, issue. I mean, the idea of of the CIA, uh, its behavior afterwards being trustworthy, you know, after we saw rendition and stuff like that. I mean, you had to sort of come up with maybe kind of a darker view of the whole world of espionage. And I would also say sort of the genre of films kind of ex- exemplified maybe by Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, you know, that where you, you had to have a more reflective uh, and, and, and complex and layered and a little bit ambiguous uh, protagonist uh, for audiences to buy it. There's uh, something a little bit too flat now uh, about some of the early, bon- you know, Connery and Roger Moore type bonds. But I, I know what's, what's your take on sort of the, the flow of all this? Well, I would say the and I'm I'm I've watched probably almost all the Bond movies, but I'm far from an, an aficionado. Um, the, you know the evolution, what evolution there's been, and it's it's been via the forces that that you invoke is still happening within certain constraints, you know that are are imposed by the fundamental character and the sort of winking kind of irony 
that uh, you know that it was based on. Um, the, I think it was I think it was really good for you to cite the Batman movies because produced by different people in different circumstances to different ends, they have incorporated at times a tremendous amount of darkness um, uh, and into their into their vision of of Batman and his antagonists. And and I, I can't imagine that Bond will ever get that you know that serious in a way that dark. That said, you know Craig Craig's as the character as played by Craig has been different. He's much more um, he has tragic potentials than you than more than any other Bond. He's he injures and and is injured. Um, I grew up with Roger Moore as Bond, and I I hated the Bond movies when I was a kid. I, I thought they were tedious and boring. Um, and and just so just so stale. I thought all the sexual innuendo and the and the winking and and Roger Moore seemed like a particularly corrupt character. When I when I went back and and discovered Sean Connery, I I, I liked him more. Maybe because he had more marquee star power. He was he was more mischievous uh, in an authentic way, at least at least cinematically um, than than Roger Moore was. But um, I, I don't know. A lot of a lot of cultural productions of the 60s and 70s that were supposed to be funny at the time that we thought were funny, you go back and they're hard to watch. You know, I watched a few years ago the um, the movie MASH, which oh, I remember God, my parents- Unwatchable now. <laughs> my parents shortling away at it. And it just seemed awful to me. It just seemed like rank misogyny. Oh. Um, and, or, you know, or Alfie, um, you know, with, with Michael Caine, obviously he was a problematic character, a womanizer, but he was supposed to evoke a certain amount of sympathy. He's just a nightmare. So the process whereby changing consciousness converts formerly hilariously entertaining cultural products into something that, you know, you're embarrassed by at best is a little bit of play with Bond, but but I, I think Bond is almost, almost partly immunized, even in retrospect against that. Why? Because there was so much winking to begin with it. It and it it, it, it drew it, it drew a line between cinematic extravaganza and especially with the help increasingly of of you know world-beating special effects. Eventually, people were sort of watching almost the way they watch the Super Bowl. You know, like you're you're, you're waiting for the opening sequence and how cool it's going to be, and that's sort of the meaning of the Bond film. Um, and and you know, it still is that way. Yeah, that's not a very coherent answer. I'm sorry. I just that's okay. That was a good answer. I thought. Um, we're, I'm being told we need a break, but I feel like we should at least pause and say a name that we haven't said yet. Although we've talked about the Wire and we've talked about the Bond, and now we've talked a little bit about Batman. You know, you can't talk about all those things and not talk about Idris Elba. There's a way in which you know a lot of people thought he should be the next Batman at some point, maybe immediately after uh, uh, Christian Bale. Uh, there are other people who thought he should be the next Bond. Uh, he's not going to be any of those things. Uh, he obviously in The Wire emerged. I mean, maybe Omar Omar Little uh, and the, the late, great Michael Williams is the one that people remember the most. But Stringer Bell is the most vividly acted and sketched out character in that series. So, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, Mercy, uh, we shouldn't end this segment without saying something about all this. Yeah, I think that uh, what I want what I want Hollywood to do, and I know this is completely infeasible, but I, I, I genuinely want it. In the same way that I want a regular person to run all of the track um, events in the Olympics just for control, I want Idris Elba to uh, do a version of every movie that he um, has been passed over for. Right? I want to see a version of Bond just to, as the control, right, um, with with Idris Elba, because I think I've, I'm, I, I'm of two minds with this. I think that one, 
I don't know, maybe I'm critical of the idea of a uh, a black spy in the UK. I think that, you know, if you're going to have a spy, maybe blending in is something that you are interested in. And there's a, a certain sense of being incognito that is required for the position. Um, but I also think that um, Idris Elba has brought an immense amount of poise and class and just smoothness in the way that I've thought about um spy culture um over the decades and i think he would have been perfect for the role and i'm sorry that he's being passed over for it right i mean i don't know you could bring up lupin now as the argument that i mean in that series a black character is the perfect person to be not a a master spy but you know a a stealthy criminal because people don't notice him uh you know he's he's sort of a good point yeah Yeah. so uh, anyway we have to stop there uh we can uh, move on uh and we will talk on the other side of this break about made Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Uh, we are back. This is The Nose, gracing our airwaves. And today are Rand Richards Cooper and Mercy Quay. We're going to talk now about Made. Made's a Netflix limited series inspired by uh, the book by uh, Stephanie Land, her memoir, Made, Hard Work, Low Pay, and a Mother's Will to Survive. Uh, it uh, is about a woman who leaves uh, a toxic uh, relationship, which is uh, already uh, deep into emotional and verbal abuse and seems to be uh, about to cross the line into a more uh, profound kind of violence. Uh, and she leaves with very little money uh, and she finds some work cleaning houses. Uh, she's also trying to protect and, and to, to have custody of her uh, almost three-year-old daughter. Uh, let's hear a little clip. You're going to hear the star of this, Margaret Qualley, as Alex, uh, talking to a caseworker uh, played by Amy Reed. So you're homeless? No. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. So you have a home? Uh, I, I, I had a home and then we left it. So Maddie's dad just, um, he drinks and, uh, he blacks out and punches stuff. Punches you? No. Punches Maddie? No. No. Just... Okay. So according to you, you're not abused and you're not homeless. Why are you here? 
Um, I just, I can't get a job if I can't afford daycare. Well, we have access to subsidized daycare grants once you have a job. I need a job to prove that I need daycare in order to get a job? What kind of f- is that? All right, so uh, I'm not all the way through this, uh, but Rand, I know you are. You are all the way through, Mead. So uh, give us your yes. overall assessment. So um, at, a, at a personal level, I think the show grabs us by portraying your worst day ever. We've all had that experience. I thought about a short story from the 1980s by Russell Banks called Success Story that recalls his protagonist's worst day as a young adult. And and this does this sort of your, your worst day ever in which obstacles and setbacks are piled up and your predicament deepens and deepens, but it's like times 100. It becomes her whole life. So the basic invitation of the show is for us to imagine being this young woman, Alex, with a three-year-old child and absolutely no resources and victimized in a bad marriage, to imagine being her and being in, in her predicament. Now, there's a larger level to the show um, and really a larger agenda because, and this has to do with what Mercy called the reckoning that, you know, many shows um, are undertaking on the social reckoning. The predicament she's in suits how we see society, you know, right now. There's an, there's, there's an emphasis on systemic suffering, uh, economic insecurity, and the sort of bureaucratic systems that you're thrown into, which we just heard in that the absurdity of that of that scene that um, that you excerpted um, the the one of the signal kind of MOs of the show stylistically and structurally is that scenes in which Alex's imagination is at work are kind of juxtaposed without the usual you know structural fades that that are given cinematically so that sometimes for a second we're not sure whether what we're seeing is really happening or whether it's a fearful anticipation of something in you know in her mind. Uh, and that and that like there's a there's a, a terrific scene when you know she's trying to figure out all these forms she has to fill out just to re- related to her child custody case and suddenly she's you know standing in a room with like all of these forms swirling around her uh, like in a snowstorm and this this amps up this show's sense of a person living quite fearfully you know in an america of like rampant in insecurity so i i think of this for better and and a little bit for worse as very much a show of of the now for for the now. You know, Mercy, just to kind of turn back to the first conversation we had on the show today, and this is a very blunt instrument kind of concept, but I think one of the things that it took pop culture a long time uh, to firmly and thoroughly embrace, and maybe it still isn't there yet, uh, is the notion that not all black people are poor and not all white people are rich. Uh, you know, it, it, it has taken a long time to get series in which we can see affluent, well-educated black people living their lives and um, not so well-educated and poor white people living their lives. We're, we're, you know, with Nomadland winning the Oscar for Best Picture and programs like the Florida, I mean, movies like the Florida Project out there and Hillbilly Elegy, we're starting anyway to see, you know, maybe a more nuanced picture of, uh, of people who just don't have very much money. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, nuance was exactly the word I was going to offer here. I, I think that, one, the character is delightful. Um, and you really are rooting for her the entire time. I, I also think that um, there is a certain sense of um, uh, this show being palatable. The fact that the character is so delightful and I'll say relatable to 
you know, and this is a, a comment from the last conversation, um, challenging the idea of what a target audience is to broadening that to your target audience is whatever um, the culture wants right now and um, or whatever dominant culture is, 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 is calling for. I think that in that this character here being a young white woman who had all this potential to go to college but wasn't able to and you see her on, you know, the on perhaps her worst day and all of the days that precede that. I what we see here is not just a, you know, tell me what this is like, but a very, very much a show me what this is like. And um, that having the perspective character be um, a, a white woman, I think, will allow viewers to relate to what a scarcity mindset forces people uh, poor people into in a way that if this was your typical sort of downtrodden um, black or Latino um, person going through the 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 worst day they've ever had, it, there's almost an expectation here. But it, in this, there was also this line that the social worker um, in the main character's imagination says, it was like, so you are a, you know, white trash mother looking for a handout. And you know, for years I've I've heard uh, the phrase white trash as not an insult to white people, but instead an insult to black and brown people mm -hmm. with the expectation that, right, all white people are wealthy and deserving of wealth, perhaps even temporarily embarrassed, you know, billionaires. And that, you know, that as a standard is actually just insulting to black and brown people. And so, um, you know, they, they are playing with, um, our understanding of of poverty a great deal here, and that that one line there is something that I I I, I would like to see um, writers be a little bit more conscious of. But I think otherwise, this is a piece that really just offers the viewer a line of sight into what scarcity mindset does for folks experiencing extreme poverty. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, that term has always bothered me for exactly the reason that you say. There's sort of a default assumption that the distinction white has to be made uh, here. Uh, and that sort of points to a lot of other default assumptions on the part of the speaker. That said, this character probably does have that phrase in her head uh, and, and maybe has heard it directed at her and stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, but I totally hear you uh, on what you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we should talk a little bit maybe about just sort of how it works as, as, as television. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about Margaret Qualley, who is the protagonist. Uh, Andy McDowell, her real-life mother, plays her mother. Uh, and I think what is a really kind of excitingly crazy and uh, kind of almost most sort of overplayed to, to comic effect role by uh, by McDowell. I mean, somebody who actually also has pretty obvious psychiatric problems, the character, not the actor, I mean. Um, but, um, I mean, Mandy McDowell has come a long way from Greystoke, where all of her lines had to be redubbed by Glenn Close because she didn't deliver them very well. She's actually turned, I think, into a pretty pretty interesting actor. Quali is interesting. You know, you, we've seen her in small roles where she really kind of grabs your attention. I'm thinking in particular, I think she's picked up as a hitchhiker in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's clearly one of the Manson girls who I think Brad Pitt's character maybe is giving a ride to. I'm not sure about that. But there's she just managed to um, manages to embody in that brief moment a, a lot of the spookiness uh, of the Manson moment. She played Anne Reinking in the uh, somewhat overlooked uh, Fosse Verdon uh, series uh, and, and was really good. 
Rand, how do you think she does in this role? She really has to carry an awful lot of this series. It, there's an ensemble there, but really quality is on screen with close-ups a tremendous amount of the time. Yes, boy, I, I, that's, a, that's a great comment, Colin, and I thought about that a lot. Um, Berg, Ingmar Bergman once uh, said something about the close-up of the actor being being the height of cinematography. And I know that's that phrase, that exact phrase was in his, his comment about this, how the, the, the close-up gives you this strange and mysterious contact with another soul through an actor's gaze. And I'm hard put to, to uh, pinpoint any recent movie or series that does more with the close-up than, than Maid does. And Quali's face is and expressions are really up to it. First of all, she, she's very wide-eyed and, and just the way her eyes are ac- accentuate her particular combination of of nervousness, alertness, worry, fear, um, and and a lot of 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 conflicting emotions play on her face at at one moment. In episode three, there's a terrific scene where her uh, woebegone um, alcoholic husband Sean agrees to drop his demand for sole custody, and 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 about five emotions play on her face at once: relief and 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 gratitude. So uh, Mercy said before, a great thing about the show is how much we end up rooting for her. This show gradually won me over about two thirds of the way through. And and part of it was, um, you know, I just want her to come through and make it. Now, can I just add one thing to that, Colin, as a sort of counterpoint? Um, I found it often easy to imagine Maid sort of being offered as, as like an adjunct to some proposed legislative package of social safety net reforms that there's sort of the, we need affordable, uh, affordable housing episode, the, 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 we need free daycare episode, the, the, we need subsidized protections for, for victims of domestic violence. There's the moldy wall and the question of environmental justice, there's renter rights. So I think one question for, for the audience of now is does, does having a show who's, agenda above and beyond the human drama is, you know, is sort of as clearly laid out as this. Is that a plus for you? Um, that's not what I responded to, I think, was this as as a very moving and, and even heroic, in a weird way, coming of age story. I think about Lady Bird in comparison. Um, or I think about like Fleabag, like a lot of help is very badly you know, needed in Fleabag, but none, none of the help that's needed is, is going to be anything that like Joe Manchin is ever going to have to say thumbs up <laughs> or, or thumbs down to. So I was I was struck by this as not only a really moving human story, but a, but a kind of activist in, in its own way, activist movie. Yeah. In a way that I think is only possible if the if the main care, if the protagonist is a white woman. Right. I think that if the protagonist was any of the supporting characters, I think you have Danielle, you've got, um, who is the, um, you know, another woman inside the shelter um, alongside Alex. And you've got Denise, who is a sort of this den mother um, who runs the DV shelter, you know, all played um, by women of color who are sort of authentically um, uh, representing, you know, a, a Latina woman or a black grandmother. I felt so much calm coming from the character that played Denise. And I think that if the protagonist was a black woman, we wouldn't have felt the same amount of right potential for um, advocacy as we do here. 
It's a really interesting uh, point. As long as we're sort of mentioning uh, the black characters, I, I feel like I should at least, as we head towards the break, shout out uh, Annika Noni Rose, Hartford's own Annika Noni Rose, who plays Regina, uh, a somewhat imperious uh, and uh, well-off um, white woman who hire a black woman who hires Margaret Qualley's character to clean her beautiful uh, Waterview house, uh, but she's just terrific uh, in the role and starts kind of peeling layers off that onion as you go along here too. Uh, I also want to quickly mention, yeah, the, there's sort of the magical realism that uh, that Rand talked about. One of the things that's really interesting about this is there's this kind of digital counter that appears on the screen that sort of shows the bank account basically uh, of Quality's character uh, that sometimes is veering into the red areas. areas areas, but it really is a very powerful comment on what it's like to be living, not just paycheck to paycheck, but, you know, walletful to walletful. Uh, All right. We have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. Welcome back. This is The Nose. Our panelists today are Rand Richards-Cooper, fiction writer, contributing editor at Commonweal, restaurant critic for the Hartford Current, uh, Mercy Quay, founder and president of The Narrative Project, and editor and columnist with The Connecticut Mirror. Uh, I want to thank also Cat uh, Pastor, who is our technical producer today and every day, uh, and Jonathan McPants, who is producing today's episode, as he usually does with The Nose. Uh, all right. So we're going to spend a little time making some recommendations, uh, and uh, Mercy's are almost inevitably reliably about outer space. Uh, We'll see if she keeps her string intact right now. Mercy? (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go with the Leitner Planetarium, um, an an observatory uh, at Yale. They reopened um, recently and are um, uh, have their observation deck open on Tuesdays, weather permitting from 8.30 to 10 p.m. And um, it's socially distanced outside and there's a great opportunity for you to um, you know, take a look at the stars through their telescopes on their uh, uh, observing deck. And so that's pretty cool. And then finally, just because of the content matter that we're dealing with today, I um, would endorse um, uh, Eldar Shafir's book, Scarcity, which is really around um, what happens to um, uh, people experiencing extreme poverty and why their bandwidth uh, forces them into making tough decisions that would otherwise seem obviously uh, poor um, to folks who aren't experiencing extreme poverty. That is, uh, the book is just simply called Scarcity and it's by Eldar Shafir. All right, two great recommendations. Thank you so much. Uh, Rand, what have you got for us this week? A couple of things very quickly. On uh, Thursday, November 4th, the Mark Twain House and Museum is having its annual virtual gala. There's a whole bunch of really great writers and musicians, including Colin, your friend, Jill Sobule, who are going to make uh, contributions that evening. So you should go to the uh, museum's website and take a look. And uh, another thing, on every Monday night in November and the first couple nights in December, I'm going to be co-hosting at the University of Hartford uh, an online film series co-hosting with my Commonweal colleague, Richard Oliva. It's called Monday Night at the Monday at the Movies. And uh, we're starting with Strangers on a Train, one of uh, the greatest Hitchcock movies ever. Uh, And so every week you watch a movie and then join uh, our group's conversation. If you want to find out about this event we did last winter, it was really fun. Go to hartford.edu slash presidents college. That's all one word, presidents college. 
and should be, and then you scroll down to register for a class. All right. That sounds great. Um, so, you know, one of the things that was fun uh, about the BBC Top 100 list uh, was um, just sort of like noticing things that were either omitted or or not listed high enough. Um, and so a few came up for me. Uh, one that I think is people just don't know about, partly because its title is so similar to another one that kind of running on a parallel chronological track, uh, is John Ridley's series American Crime. This was an uh, anthology series. I think it only ran three seasons. It kind of um, used heavily a repertory uh, cast, uh, Regina King, Felicity Huffman, who despite her you know, current problems is a really good actor, uh, Timothy Hutton. Uh, and each season was in the ways that Mercy was talking about in the first segment, you know, really kind of probes very smartly and dramatically uh, about issues of race and class and uh, stuff like that. And it's just wonderful. And the problem is, of course, one of the problems is that America, that uh, there's a thing called American Crime Story, which is Ryan Murphy's uh, series that includes the current thing that's uh, about impeachment. But if you can find this, it's hard to find. Some of these things, you know, they stream for a while and then they go away and then they come back to streaming. I don't know where American Crime is, but uh, it's definitely worth watching. As long as we're talking about uh, Regina King, uh, another series that pretty much disappeared that she was terrific in was Southland, Southland, where she played a, a kind of tormented detective. Uh, but the whole series is terrific and wonderful if you can track that down. And then one that Rand and I both enjoy quite a lot, and I, I'm pretty sure you can't stream it at the moment, but the series Rectify, uh, which is uh, about a, a wrongly convicted uh, man trying to rejoin society after his time in prison. If you're enjoying, enjoying the work of the actor J. Cameron Smith as Jerry, in succession right now, uh, you will very much enjoy her performance as the mother of that person in that series. But when Rectify becomes available somehow, <laughs> you might have to buy it as a box set or something. It's absolutely worth tracking down. So all of those. And then I think I might have uh, convinced Mercy or helped convince Mercy that Battlestar Galactica, which is on the list uh, of the 100 best um, series of the 21st centuries, but, but nowhere near high enough, and also really does probe issues of race and class and has about as good a critique of the Patriot Act unfolding kind of in real time uh, as the Patriot Act was unfolding uh, and about the corruptions of power and stuff like that. A terrible final episode, a terrible ending, but the, this, the many seasons that preceded it are just, just terrific. And here's my last endorsement. This is the most non-NPR endorsement ever. Wheat thins, sun-dried tomato and basil crackers. They are like... They're, they put, they're putting the crack back in crackers, let me just say. Uh, I mean, Don't say we all. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so, so good. Uh, so uh, even if you're not a wheat thins person, get the sun-dried tomato and basil crackers. All right. Mercy Quay and Rand Richards-Cooper, great to talk to you guys. Uh, thanks to my whole team here. We're coming back next week. We're going to do it all over again. about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah